Thank you, Brad. Thank you, worship team. So good to be with you this morning, church, and uh, to all of you that have been uh, online with us throughout this whole process. And uh, we greet you in the name of the Lord. And we're uh, just blessed and uh, honored that you would be with us this morning. Today, uh, we're going to be in the last chapter of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 28. And today we come to this last chapter of this magnificent book that records for us the history of the early church. It's been an incredible journey as we have witnessed the birth of the first church. It's spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the entire Roman Empire. And uh, we have read and we have studied how God transformed ordinary Jewish people into world changers. And then not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. And he took uh, people from every walk of life and uh, put his power in their lives, and they became world changers. And world changers are not reserved for the super spiritual or the superstars. A world changer is somebody that simply believes God and that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could imagine, ask, or think. And we saw that change didn't lie in the political realm, though the church was birthed during the Roman Empire, which was one of the most uh, mightiest empires of human history. We know that it didn't exist in just the social economic realms or even in the religious hierarchy realms. Rather, change happened in the world one person at a time. And it happens in the heart of every individual who will open their lives to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us, I pray that uh, you have taken a step of faith because it's not a church that God is calling you to. It's not a denomination. It's not even uh, a belief in the goodness of your own moral fiber or being, uh, as, as commendable as that may be, it is about a saving relationship with a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And outside of him, the Bible says, there is no salvation. For there is only one name that is given under heaven by which men and women and children may be saved, and it's the name of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you today, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because to trust in a denomination, to trust in a church, to trust in your own goodness is folly beyond folly. Uh, because if we do that, really what we are saying is, Jesus, you died for nothing. And Jesus didn't die for nothing. He died for you and for me. He died because people need a Savior. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. 
And that's why Jesus came, to seek and to save that which was lost. And that is really the book of Acts in a nutshell. God seeking men and women to come into a relationship with him. And he ordained an organization or an entity or an organism called the church. And the church is much more than a club. It is a group of people that have been saved by Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and now they are commissioned to go out and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And apart from that, we are living in a, a, an illusion. So I pray that you're not living in an illusion today, but that you've opened your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that those that do that will be born again by the Spirit. And one of the great religious leaders of the day, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, asked Jesus how he could actually see the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, it is only by being born again that one can enter and see the kingdom of God. Are you born again? I pray that you have been, because you can only be born again by repenting of your sin, which is just another word for turning away from the way that you are going, believing on Jesus and walking with him. And when that happens, the Bible tells us that you will be born again, not by flesh and blood, but by the Spirit of the living God. And when the Holy Spirit comes into you, then you begin a dynamic relationship with God. You don't change because you try to be a better person. You don't change because you're a part of a religious organization. You change because God lives within you, and he begins to change the attitudes of your heart, the appetites of your flesh, the outlook of your life. You begin to actually be conformed now to a whole new set of desires, and that is done by the Holy Spirit. Religion can't do it. Your church can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. So last week, we uh, finished off in chapter 27, which was a shipwreck. And we didn't call it a shipwreck. We called it a ship direct because God was in control of the storm. Even though the storm brought about great loss of cargo, it brought the loss of the ship itself, God revealed what real priorities are all about. And that is, is that we are trying to save the ships and the cargoes of our life while God is trying to save the souls on board. And that is the story of life, folks. We put all of our trust and all of our priorities in the wrong things. We think it's about how much we have on board. We think about what type of ship that we're sailing. We think about all of those things, but in the storms of life, none of that stuff is important. What is important is the souls on board of the ship. How is it with your soul? Are you busy trying to accumulate more cargo? Are you trying to buy a bigger ship? Are you trying to sail to ports unknown? That's not the issue of life, folks. The issue of life is God is saving souls on, the bo on board of the ship. So today we come to Acts 28, and it opens with the, the uh, 
sailors and Paul being shipwrecked and washing up on an island called Malta. Malta is an island in the Mediterranean. It's about 58 miles south of Sicily. It is not a big island. It's about 17 miles long and 9 miles wide. And uh, the name Malta actually means refuge. Now, it tells us in verse 1 and 2, and when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. It tells us that the native peace, uh, people of Malta were showing unusual kindness to these sailors. And that native, the word native there would basically be meaning anyone at the time that did not actually speak the Greek language of the Roman Empire. And it says that they built a fire and uh, they, uh, they were comforted from the cold. And so you have the picture of this uh, hungry, shipwrecked uh, sailors who have been in the storm of their life for well over two weeks. They've been washed up on the the shore and uh, actually uh, just shows you that little acts of kindness can go a long way. Now look at verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. I like the simple servanthood of Paul's heart here. Uh, after he had received a visitation from God upon the ship and he told all of the sailors on board that an angel of the Lord whom he served stood by his side and basically said, if you uh, basically obey God and leave no one behind, you will all be spared. And... uh, It's interesting that when Paul comes to the shore, he doesn't sit on a throne and demand people respect him because after all, he had the word from God. He goes about in simple servanthood, gathering wood so that people could actually have a fire to be warmed by. You know what? Paul was a servant. And uh, servanthood is the key to basic leadership. In the kingdom of God, servanthood is what you look for. And Jesus said that uh, if you would be first in God's kingdom, you have to learn to be servant of all. And so the heart of Paul is always based in simple servanthood. And the Lord Jesus himself was the servant of servants. For he said he did not come uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you serve in the most practical ways that you can. Some people think, well, I can't serve the Lord because uh, I can't play guitar or I can't be a drummer or I don't, I'm not a public speaker. Well, when we come back together every morning, we take a hundred, a 200 chairs and we set them out, we set up classrooms, and after the service, we stack the chairs and put everything back. So, can you stack chairs for Jesus? Can you make cookies for Jesus? 
Can you make a pot of coffee for Jesus? You know, you don't have to basically think about being Billy Graham to qualify to serve Jesus. You can serve Jesus with what you have and where you are. And if you believe that, say amen. Oh, and there was a thundering amen from the crowd here this morning. So, verse 4, so when the natives saw the, the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. It's interesting that the way the natives thought was that divine retribution was visiting the apostle Paul. He escaped the storm in the sea, but there is no way God was going to let him escape the snake that had fastened to his hand. Verse 5, but he shook off the creature into the fire and he suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up. I like that. They just thought that some... They're just watching Paul, and they're just thinking, this guy's just going to blow up like a balloon, and he's just going to fall dead in front of them into the fire. They were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and they saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said, he was a god. There you go. In one verse, he's a murderer, and two verses later, now he's a god. And so, what are we to deduce from that? And that is, do not base your life upon the opinions of people or upon uh, what people say about you. If you're serving the Lord, people will, people will say all things about you. They might think that you're uh, an imbecile. They might think you're uh, a hypocrite. They might think you're a lot of things. Some people might think, well, you're a really great person. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that don't let your head get too big and don't let Satan lie to you. What you are is simply a servant of God. And so here we have the people in one breath saying, this guy's a murderer. And then two verses later, they go, hmm, this guy must be a god. Now, in verse 7, it says, in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as necessary. Interesting here that the great storms of life led to the great opportunities of ministry. Paul, being a servant, gathers sticks for a fire. A viper fastens onto his hand, but instead of blowing up, and falling down dead, he has no ill effects, and the people think, what is it about this guy that he hasn't died? And so they take him to a sick man who happens to be the father-in-law uh, 
to Publius, and he prays for him, and the man is healed. And the next thing you know, you got a revival going on in the island. And so what the enemy meant for evil, God turned for good. And that's why this was not a shipwreck. This was a ship direct, because God wanted to visit the people of Malta. He wanted to turn them from their false gods and religion and bring them to the glorious gospel and saving faith of Jesus Christ. And so he created a little storm and allowed Paul and the boys to get shipwrecked. He happened to just put a viper in the group of wood, in the, in the wood that Paul collected, just happened to put a viper there, just happened to have the viper fastened on his hand, and just happened to show the people that there is great power in the preaching of the gospel. Coincidence? I think not. Divine appointment. And so, folks, I don't understand all the reasons for storms. As a matter of fact, if I had my choice, I would never go into a storm. I wouldn't want to be a part of a storm. I have been on the ocean in a storm, in a small boat, and I thought that this was it. We were losers. We were goners. And it's no fun being in a storm. It's no fun being in spiritual storms. We're, we're, we're tossed around. We don't know up from down. And the only thing that we really know at this time is trust God because nothing else seems to be making sense. And yet God uses storms in the Bible for many purposes, and we talked about some of them last week. He can bring uh, a growth of our faith and show us how great he is. He can correct us when we're going the wrong way. He can protect us. He can direct us through the storms of life. And the key is don't freak out. Don't panic in a storm. Do not cast away your faith in the storms of life. Why? Because, folks, if you have been alive for any amount of time in walking with Jesus, you know that storms are not... Uh, um, <clears throat> if they come, but when they come. And it's, it's just a part of life. We live in a world that's filled with fallenness and sin. We also live a life that needs sanctification and conforming. And God uses these storms in our lives to serve his purposes. And if you will stay close to Jesus... And in the word of God, you will come through these storms, built up, uh, faith increasing, and uh, fit for the master's use. Let's look at verse 11. So, now after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. In arriving at Syracuse, we stayed there three days. Uh, that's not Syracuse, New York, by the way. Uh, this is a Syracuse over in the Mediterranean. And from there, we circled around and uh, reached uh, Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Petuliae. 
I believe that's what it was. And we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us uh, as far as the Appy Forum and three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So now we have a trial, uh, a trial itinerary uh, given to us in verses 11 to 16. And I just want you to note something here that is very simple. And that is that God provided Paul with encouraging fellowship on the trip. And one of the things that we are called to do is to, to encourage one another uh, in the journey of life. We are not called to be discouragers anywhere in the Bible. You won't find that in the Bible. Go forth and discourage one another in the name of Jesus. Go forth and rob people of their fortitude uh, for the glory of God. You're not going to find that in the Bible, but what you will find in the Bible in many places is be of good courage, Take courage. Encourage one another. What is fear? It is the lack of courage. It is discouragement. No courage. Uh, what is encouragement? Faith in the promises of God. What a beautiful thing that believers sought out Paul on his journey to Rome and he was encouraged. What a, wouldn't it be wonderful to be just used for one week in your life to meet the great apostle Paul along the way and say, God used me to encourage the apostle Paul. I have to say that I am so blessed. Um, I'm not even sure what the word is. I, I, uh, I feel so humbled and overwhelmed when people come up to me and encourage me. Pastor Dale, uh, we're praying for you. Pastor Dale, we really appreciated the word. Uh, God really spoke to me and encouraged me. Pastor Dale, uh, we thank the Lord for you. Now, uh, I'm not worthy of any of these uh, things, but when people come and uh, speak these things into my life and into Sandy's life, we are so encouraged and we feel fortified to basically get up the next morning and to follow Jesus again because of the encouragement that God has given to us by his people. Isn't it a wonderful thing when God's people come alongside you unexpectedly, unsolicited, and they put an arm around you, and they encourage you in the Lord. You know, encouragement is such a powerful, powerful gift that God has given his church. And you know what? You, you, don't, you don't have to take a course and learn it. You don't have to have a degree hanging on your wall to give it. You don't need money to buy it. All you need is just a simple arm around the shoulder a few types of the keypad on Facebook or a text or an email or Instagram or whatever you're using and encourage 
one another in the Lord. Folks, encouragement is of God. And it is something that God has given us in the Bible. And if you read the uh, Pauline epistles, you'll see that Paul was a great encourager. And in his darkest times, he thanked people for being an encouragement to him. Let's look at his ministry in Rome, verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not uh, that I had anything of which to, uh, compel, yeah, I'm sorry, verse 19. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Uh, then they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came uh, reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think for concerning this sect. We know that it is spoken against everywhere. So they had heard of Christianity they had heard that it was spoken of against any, everywhere, but of Paul himself, they were not aware. So, verse 23, when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Uh, their eyes are hard, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when they had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Paul arrives in Rome and he does exactly as he has always done. He summons the Jews and he begins to reason with them from morning to night the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
starting with all that the Old Testament proclaimed about the Messiah. And we have talked about this before. Remember that the early church was preaching the good news of Jesus the Messiah from the scriptures. And what were the scriptures? The scriptures were the Old Testament. There was no New Testament written. Paul was writing the New Testament as he lived under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So was Matthew, so was Mark, so was Luke, so was John, so was Jude. All of these men were inspired by the Holy Spirit at the present time to write what we now have as the New Testament. But Paul and Peter and all of the disciples saw the good news in the Old Testament. I'm always amazed when people go, oh, the Old Testament. I don't like reading the Old Testament. You should like reading the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, starting with the law of Moses, which is what? The first five books of the Bible. You mean Jesus is in the book of Leviticus? Yes, he is in the book of Leviticus. Actually, he is seen in every all of the five offerings, he is seen in all the feast days. All of those are simply foreshadowings of the divine work of Jesus. He is in the book of Exodus as the Lamb of God. He is in the book of New, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and he is in the book of Genesis. He's in every book. And Paul opened the scriptures to them and reasoned with them from morning till night, it says, not just like for a half an hour or 15 minutes. They had an all-day gab fest about Jesus being the Messiah from the scriptures. And as usual, some received and some believed. And so, folks, we are not called uh, to... Um, uh, persuade, let's put it this way. We are called to be witnesses. What people do with what we bear witness to is between them and God. Some will believe and some will reject, but that is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to simply give the good news to those whom God gives us opportunity. What they do with it is not our responsibility. So Paul preached the gospel to everyone. Now, this encourages me. Why? Well, if I sat under the ministry of the apostle Paul and was not convicted of my sin, and of the message of Jesus Christ, I don't take it too hard when people don't believe me. Because people sat under, arguably, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived in Christendom, the Apostle Paul, and they went, nah, I don't think so. Nah, I don't believe. Could you have a better Bible study than with the Apostle Paul? who was taught by the Lord himself. For Paul said in Galatians, my doctrine and my revelation didn't come to me from flesh and blood. The Lord revealed it to me. And yet, people sitting under his teaching go, nah, I'll pass. So don't take it personally when you share the gospel with people and go, nah, I'll pass. 
Dr. Alan Redpath, a great Bible teacher and a wonderful man of God, has since died and he's gone to be with the Lord, told a congregation as a young uh, Englishman who had become a Christian, he heard a sermon that turned his life upside down and all around. And he heard this from, he didn't say who the pastor was, but this is what the pastor said. The pastor said, you can have a saved soul and a lost life. You can have a saved soul and a lost life. You can have a soul that is saved, but your life is going nowhere. Because your life is simply not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is about a group of people that not only heard the message and believed the message, but everything in their life was committed to doing what the Lord had asked them to do. I want to just conclude with a couple thoughts this morning, and I call it Acts 29, because the book of Acts ends in chapter 28. But the church continues today using the same template and the same principles that it was birthed with in the first 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And so I want to just share a few thoughts as we close the book this morning. The church continues today in the same way that it was started. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 24. I want to just grab a few principles out of there in closing this morning in the book of Acts. You know, every time that I finish a book, it's kind of like saying goodbye to an old friend. Uh, we've been in it. We've immersed ourselves in it. We've preached through it. We've studied it. Uh, we've looked at all the people. We get to see the flow of history. We begin to understand the people that are in it. And it's almost like saying goodbye to an old and trusted friend. And that's how I feel today when I come to the book of Acts and, and to finishing off the book. It's like, it's like a bittersweet thing of saying goodbye to an old friend. But I would like to just say that the church today must continue the same way it started. And how did it start? Well, number one, it must continue with the same confidence in God's word. Look at Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, Jesus speaking to his disciples, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. A New Testament church, a thriving church, a church that is alive in the Holy Spirit must have the same confidence in God's word that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. 
and that is, is that everything that is in the Word of God is absolutely trustworthy, and you can have confidence in it. Our confidence is not in our ability. It's not in our wisdom. It's not in our strength. Our confidence is in God's Word, and that everything that the Lord said about His Word must be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled. Secondly, we have the same comprehension. We must have the same comprehension. Look at verse 45 of Luke 24. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. The basis of all Christian walk, the Christian walk is on the comprehension of Scripture. How do we know the will of God? By the Word of God. How do we know what direction to go? By the Word of God. How do we know how to live? By the Word of God. And so we have to have the same comprehension that the early disciples had. If the early disciples were breathed upon by the Lord so that they may have their understanding open to comprehend the Scriptures, we have the same Holy Spirit today, and He opens our minds to comprehend the Scriptures because the Bible is a spiritual book. It's not a natural book. It's a spiritual book. And when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you, you should have a desire for God's Word. And you're not going to know everything about God's Word until you see Jesus. And maybe we won't even know everything then. But the fact of the matter is, is that we can understand things that God has given us to understand. Thirdly, we have been given the same commission that the early church was given. Look at verses 46 and on. Then Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Folks, the church is on mission today, not a holiday. We are on a mission, and we've been called to mission. A church that has lost its love for lost souls has lost its reason for why it exists. A church that has no burden for the lost, no evangelistic zeal for missions, no desire to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, is there someone that you would help me speak to today, minister to today, so that I might help them know you, is a church and a people that have lost their reason for existing. Churches that have no desire to reach the lost have no reason for existing. There are clubs out there today that will give you lots of reasons for being a part of the club. You can feed people. You can build homes for people. You can go to golf courses and, and golf. You can go to tennis clubs and play tennis. You can go to cricket clubs and play cricket. You can go to the Rotary Club. You can go to the Knights of Columbus Club. And they have all of their reasons for why they exist in that club. But the church is different. One of the reasons why the church exists is because it 
has a mandate that no other club has, and that is to seek and to save that which was lost and to evangelize them. And Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say, go to church in all the world and do nothing. It is go, go, go. One soul, one soul. Ask the Lord of the harvest that he would send you, not Dale, not Marcus, not Justin, send you into the world to love one soul into the kingdom of God this year, in your life. One soul. Now, you know why that's a good prayer? Because that is in the word of God, and it's the will of God. If you have never led one soul to the Lord in your entire Christian life, go into your bedroom and fall on your knees and ask the Lord to open up an opportunity that you might just love one soul into the kingdom of God. I don't say that to shame you or guilt you. I say that because you will be electrified. You will be energized. There is no more exciting Christian than a Christian that is sharing their faith with others. Do you know why churches can be so dull and dead? Because they've lost the reason for why they exist. And the reason is, is that no one is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with anybody. Do you want to find an exciting church? You'll find a church that loves lost souls. And I am blessed because I hear so many people in our church that are sharing the gospel with people. I hear so many stories of people that are praying for people. And the fact is, is that that's where it all starts. Just praying. Just, Lord, help me. Help me to just find one soul. You know, the voice of the martyrs was started by a guy by the name of Richard Wormbrand. Do you know how he came to the Lord? There was an old man in a village who, as his life was drawing to a close, he said, Lord, what have I done? Please send one soul that I might love them into your kingdom. And along comes this man named Richard Wormbrandt, and he leads him to the Lord in a communist land. Richard Wormbrandt was imprisoned for his faith, and when he was released, he started the voice of the martyrs. I don't know who the old guy was that led him to the Lord, but I know who Richard Wormbrandt is. The fourth thing is, is that the Lord has given us the same power as the early church. Look at verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The same Holy Spirit that the early church had is the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
We didn't receive a different spirit, and we haven't received a different Jesus, and we don't have a different gospel, and we haven't been given a different commission. Jesus spoke often about the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, just before he was crucified in John's, uh, John's gospel, chapters 14 through 16. In John 14, verses 15 to 18, he said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he, will dw for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you, orphans. I will come to you. A few verses down, in verse 26, he says again to his disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance, to your remembrance, all things that I said to you. In the next chapter, John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, notice he's the helper, the advocate, the parakletos, the one that has come alongside. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John 16, verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, uh, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that are the... Uh, that the Father has our mind. Therefore, I said, he will take of mine and declare it to you. Does that sound like we are alone? No, it doesn't. Jesus wanted to know us to know that when he ascended to the Father, he was going to send the Holy Spirit, the helper, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth to empower us, to reveal Jesus to us, to help us, to do that which he has called us to do. There would be nothing so cruel for God to say, I want you to do all these things. Try your best. You're on your own. We'll see how you get along. That's not what the Lord did. He said, I leave you here as my witnesses. I ask you to go forth and be my witnesses, but you're not alone. The Spirit of God will dwell in you. You know what? If you are a follower of Jesus today and you have put your faith in Christ Jesus today as your Lord and your Savior, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling or an emotion. 
It's not even an experience that we seek or exalt, though those things can happen in the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and as we exercise faith in the promises of Jesus and the Word of God, you will see the Spirit of God do exactly what Jesus said he would do. A lot of Christians are waiting for some type of mystical, powerful experience before they launch out and trust God. But Jesus said, if you put your faith in me and repent, you will be born again by the Spirit. The Spirit of God will indwell you. Paul says in his epistles, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of that which is to come. You are indwelled by the Spirit, and you must exercise your faith muscles. And as you exercise faith, you will see the Spirit of God and the power of God operating in your life. And you'll go, whoa, how did that happen? By faith. And you'll realize that you're not an orphan, that the Spirit of God actually does dwell in you. So step up, step out, and step in to the experience of the Holy Spirit confirming all that Jesus promised would happen. So in conclusion, folks, the church is not a monument. It's a movement. It's a movement of born-again Christians who are alive in the Holy Spirit. R. Kent Hughes defines three characteristics of a vibrant church. It is an upward church. What does that mean? It is a church that has worship as one of its highest priority for God's people because an upward church is a worshiping church. And worship is the primary characteristic of a church that refuses to become a monument. When you walk into a church that is alive, the worship is vibrant. You can sense people in love with Jesus and that their worship and expression and singing is not just going to the roof, it is going up into the heavenlies. The immense tragedy of the contemporary church is that most people worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. William Temple said, worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open up the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. That's worship. The second thing about a vibrant Acts 29 church is that it is an inward church, and inward meaning we care for one another. The Bible tells us in Acts 2.42... The template of the early church is that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And the root idea of fellowship in the Greek is commonness, having things in common, not in the sense of being ordinary, but in the fact that we have a joint participation in something, and that's Jesus. And every time the word fellowship is used in the New Testament, it donates some type of sharing uh, with something, uh, sharing something, or sharing with someone 
uh, or sharing in something with someone that they're experiencing. And here in Acts, the emphasis in the church was that they cared for one another. They sold buildings. They sold property so that all might be taken care of. All believers, it said, were together in the common good and shared together as they had, selling possessions and giving to everyone as they needed. They cared for one another socially, materially, and spiritually. And care was a dynamic witness to the world around them. You know, the Roman Empire was conquered not by the sword, but by love. And it was often said that the thing that marked Christians in the Roman Empire is, look how they love one another. And then the last is the outward characteristic of a church, and that is taking the message of Christ to the world. Upward, inward, outward. Sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the world is the theme of the book of Acts. In chapters 1 to 8, it started in Jerusalem and Judea. In chapters 8 to 11, it went out to Samaria. And then in chapters 12 to 28, it went to all the ends of the Roman Empire. And so the flame of the gospel that started in Jerusalem with the promise of the Father that the Spirit of God would come upon them found its spread and its message in all parts of the Roman Empire. A New Testament church, as we see in the book of Acts, is an upward church filled with vibrant worship. It is an inward church that loves and cares for people, and it is an outward church that loves lost souls. Folks, my prayer as I get older is that I will not be a fossil or a monument, but that I will be a part of a living movement that worships the living God and proclaims the gospel to each and every person that God gives us opportunity to share with while we have breath. Folks, we have one life to live. And it is going to be very apparent to us that at our last breath and one second into eternity, the things that the world so highly values, money, beauty, prestige, popularity, is going to mean exactly a rimless zero. And it's hard for us to grasp that because we live in this world and we breathe this world. But folks, let us be a church that is not a monument, but a church that is a movement. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that as we've come to the end of the book of Acts, that it, will be an, that it has encouraged and strengthened us to be about your business. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that has taken this word to heart. Lord, let us, let me love a soul into your kingdom. Oh, Lord, open the doors. Open the pathways. Show me, Lord, that person that you would have me 
love and share, Lord God, your goodness with this year, this month, whatever the case may be. Use me, Lord God, to be, Lord, your instrument. And Father, bless Calvary Chapel Kelowna and every person that is uh, our guest today from other parts of the world, other churches. Lord, encourage them and strengthen them, Lord God, this day I pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. And all of God's people said, amen. And thus concludes the book of Acts 2020 in the year of our Lord. Amen. Miss you all. May the Lord bless you. We're going to worship the Lord in closing this morning.